Okay. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Horse.com's Ask the Vet Live. I'm your host, Michelle Anderson, digital editor of the Horse.com. Today, our topic is stall rest and rehab, how to keep your horse healthy, safe, and sane during layup. Uh, tonight's free event is sponsored by Sweet PDZ Stall Freshener. We're joined uh, tonight with Dr. Brad Jackman, who is a board-certified veterinary surgeon and owner and CEO of Pioneer Equine Hospital in Oakdale, California, and Dr. Brad Bentz, a board-certified internist, veterinary practitioner, and emergency and critical care practitioner, and also the owner of Bluegrass Equine Performance in Lexington, Kentucky. Thank you for joining us, Dr. Jackman and Bentz. Glad to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks. Uh, so for tonight's topic, we received uh, hundreds of questions during registration. Of course, during this hour presentation, we aren't going to be able to get to them all, but we are going to do our best to get through them during the next hour. Uh, if you have a question that you would like to ask via your live chat console, I'm going to ask that you wait about 15 minutes in uh, before you start uh, submitting those. We also have live polls for you to participate in. I'll let you know when those are coming up and so you can respond. We have a lot of ground to cover, so let's go ahead and get started. I want to start with you, Dr. Benz, and ask, what are some of the reasons that a horse may need to be laid up in a stall and rested? <clears throat> well, thanks for having me again. Um, so <clears throat> an interesting topic, and I think it's a broader topic than, than we frequently realize especially given my type of practice where I am uh, dealing with horses that are laid up for not just musculoskeletal reasons but also for uh, medical reasons. And um, I guess that's uh, to some extent my answer is to, to think broader in terms of layup. <clears throat> yes, uh, the, we, we commonly are laying horses up because of their modes of competition and how they, uh, how they injure themselves in regards to competition. But they also get sick and they have to have stall rest uh, and controlled exercise programs and what have you when they become sick with any, any various types of, of diseases or disorders as well. Okay. Well, we're going to start in with the questions that were submitted during registration, and we're going to start with Renee, who is from Marine, Minnesota. And Dr. Jackman, she asks, my horse is just finishing three months of stall rest for a superficial digital flexor tendon laceration. How should I increase my horse's paddock size, and in what increments? And, and this is a common question we get. And you know, first and foremost, a lot of it will depend on one, which is the severity of the injury, and as well as to how is the healing progressing. And so, I can't emphasize enough that it's very important to have you know periodic examinations by your veterinarian and when you're dealing with soft tissue injuries like this especially periodic ultrasound examinations to try to determine or assess how the healing is occurring because one of the things we want to do is definitely try to have the tendon heal to the best of its ability and to do so the first thing we have to do is make certain that we do controlled exercise during this aspect. And controlled exercise allows for periodic graduations of increased stress. We know that the body heals along lines of stress, so it's important to really be able to monitor this as we go along. So a lot of times what we're going to do is just gradually increase the paddock size to something maybe like a 20 foot by 20 foot, 
and then maybe go up into a 40 foot by 40 foot, but the behavior of a horse will definitely influence that. Some horses will be great in a 20 foot by 20 foot. Some horses will be great in a 40 foot by 40 foot. Some you can though, put them in a 20 foot paddock and all they're going to do is pace from side to side, run from side to side. So the behavior of a horse is also going to determine it. But I, I can't emphasize enough that you know, sequential examinations and especially like ultrasound examinations are important to really uh, you know, influence how we're going to increase our exercise program as well as increase our paddock size. And I'm, I'm a firm believer in keeping kind of the, the confinement small with controlled exercise versus saying, well, we're just going to just turn out into a bigger area. Okay. So that's definitely something that people should work with their veterinarian to create a system that's going to work for their horse. If we want to get the very best healing possible, I, I, I think it's critical. So we got scores of questions about feeding horses, people concerned about horses being too thin, uh, overweight, or uh, keeping energy levels maybe down a bit during layup. So Dr. Jackman, I'm going to start with you. Uh, we have a question from Lydia in San Francisco, and she wants to know what the ideal feeding reg regimen is for a horse that's on stall rest and how that will help optimize recovery and keep her horse sane. Well. I do feel that a lot of times we get into the problem of we've had a horse and usually they're athletes so they're being fed a, a higher energy diet. Now they have to be laid up for a reason and one of the things we want to do is continue to feed our horse and a lot of times we really have to cut back on the amount that we are feeding. Um, we can't uh, add too much energy, too much protein, um, otherwise the horse is going to metabolize that in a situation where they, they're going to want to exert that energy and, and really what we're trying to do is, is bring their energy level down. So usually we have to cut back on, on what they're feeding, especially cut back on you know, the, the grains, the supplements, the, the sweet feeds, those types of things to decrease you know, the energy level of that horse. Um, and then as far as other supplements to really try and promote, and, and a lot of times I'm dealing with musculoskeletal injuries, you know, there's really not a lot of need to really supplement with a lot of other things if we're feeding a, a, a decent ration to this horse to try to supplement, um, you know, from a healing standpoint. I mean, there, there, there's some... There's a few occasional things, and again, I'd ask them to consult with their veterinarian as far as what they feel comfortable with on that particular condition, but usually there's not a lot of supplementation that needs to be done. Okay. And Dr. Bentz, do you have anything to add to what Dr. Jackman has shared? Well, I think those are all really good points. I think that um, the other thing that Dr. Jackman brought up earlier is uh, the involvement of some sort of controlled exercise, and, and you know, we say weight loss and layup, uh, but there's all types of, of uh, degrees of layup. Uh, there's strict stall rest all the way to uh, controlled hand walking and, and even controlled exercise. And so I think that involving, you know, of course, uh, feeding appropriately, not overfeeding. Uh, obviously, we recognize feeding and complete feeding is, um, is important for, for a horse's recovery and, and any disease or, or injury they've suffered. Um, but it's also important to make sure that they don't um, balloon out and, and gain the weight while they're on time off. So I think it, in, in echoing what Dr. Jackman had said about following the condition along, whatever that condition is, having regular reassessments of veterinarian involved in de determining <coughs> excuse me, when it's okay or when it's safe for that horse to um, have some sort of managed uh, 
uh, exercise, be it hand walking twice a day or even you know finally getting out and having uh, controlled uh, trotting or lunging or what have it. But a graduated system of that is also going to help control weight loss. And so we have to think about um, you know as these horses recover and they improve, uh, we're not just wanting to start reloading them from the standpoint of developing the strength and, and the uh, uh, and the integrity of the things that may have been injured or damaged before, but also we, we it helps control the horse's weight loss, its insulin response, and uh, and allows you to, um, to you know to keep that under control without having the horse uh, get overly um, over overfed or uh, over energetic, so to speak. Okay. Well, and our next question was from Marianne in Palm Beach, Florida, and hers was specifically, how do I help my horse lose weight? And, and I think we've addressed that. Um, we also have Sally in Hartsville, Ohio, and she has a quarter horse who's packed on several pounds while he's been on stall rest, and she wants to know if he should continue getting his grain. And, and in addition to that, should these horses continue to get their supplements while they're on rest? And Dr. Benz, if you want to take that one, that'd be great. Sure. Um, I, I think it's a great question. I, I think that that question needs to be answered um, that in, in a manner that's specific to the horse. Um, you know, I think that there's a lot of potential interplay with various conditions or issues uh, with weight gain. Um, and as the case were, I mean, if you have, quote, quote unquote, you know, one of these easy keepers, um, we've recognized more and more conditions, both genetically associated and, and perhaps uh, iatrogenically induced by, by the way we've managed these horses uh, over the years. Um, I think what we, uh, what we need to keep in mind is, is that um, there are conditions that may predispose them to developing uh, that type of a, a response to our feeding, especially when they're not involved in exercise. Exercise is a major component of, of weight control and managing some of these uh, conditions that we've identified such as equine metabolic syndrome and uh, insulin resistance in the horse and when you take that ability or that you take that mechanism away of helping control that in the horse then these horses that may be occult, uh, in other words uh, not identified previously as having these conditions are going to start packing on weight and when they're in regular exercise, they don't show that those clinical signs, even though they perhaps have the underlying condition or have a predisposition to the underlying condition. So um, I think you know a good physical exam uh, by your regular veterinarian uh, and an evaluation of the specific uh, the instances that have led to the layup and what the requirements are for that horse. And again, keeping it basic. Uh, making sure that it, it, with all those things in regard, we're assessing these things adequately, not overfeeding them, not oversupplementing them, and exercising them when it in in a manner that's safe, but also when it's it's safe to do so, and when your veterinarian guides you to do such. Okay. Well, it's time for us to go ahead and launch that first poll. So I'm going to go ahead and do that. Everyone out there listening can go ahead and respond. Uh, the question is, uh, how often do you strip down your stall when your horse is on, on rest? So go ahead and answer those, uh, everyone listening, and we'll continue on with the questions for our vets. Uh, we have a question from Teresa, and she's from Bend, Oregon, which is actually my hometown. I don't know Teresa, but hi, Teresa, if you're out there. Uh, she has a 22-year-old quarter horse gelding who has acute laminitis, uh, and she's using a stall ball to entertain the horse, and it's a stall ball that has a treat in it. And she's wondering, Dr. Benz, if 
those treats could cause her horse any harm since he is laminitic and he is on stall rest. Uh, you know, it's 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 partially dependent on what it is that that, that is the treat. I, I I think that if you're if you're not in control, close control of how many and what types of treats are being fed to your horse, I don't think it's a safe thing to do. Uh, there may be other people walking by frequently saying, oh, look at the beautiful horse. There are other people in the barn that are being kind to your horse and are feeding treats and you don't even know about it. Um, and uh, so I, I'm not a major advocate of indiscriminate use of treats. Uh, that being said, I think it, it, it might be, if it's, if it's well monitored and we know that the, that the treat, the particular type of treat that they're using is safe, isn't going to cause a significant rush of sugar into, into the system or what have you, uh, and if it's hopefully um, helping with the uh, uh, sort of the psyche of the horse uh, in the stall, as this case may, may be, um, as long as it's overseen closely and we know how much he's getting and how much, um, you know, how much is being fed and, and um, what the effects are of that particular product, um, I, I can probably be managed safely. But I, and generally speaking, I'm not a major advocate of, of, of using um, indiscriminate treats for horses. Okay. And Dr. Jackman, do you have any specific treats that you do recommend if people are going to be giving their horses treats while they're in stall rest? Yeah, I mean, you know, I think first and foremost, I think we have to realize that, yes, I think the horses enjoy the treats, but I think the treats probably treat the, the, the human caretakers more than they treat the horse themselves. <laughs> um, so that's important for our psyche. Um, might help the horse's psyche as well. I would be very, very careful, uh, like Dr. Ben said, that I'd be very careful with, especially free choice situations or or situations where you can't. But, you know, as with most things, as, as long as we use common sense and moderation, we're probably okay. Um, however, there are some treats in there that are very high in the carbohydrates aspects. Um, so I have a tendency, if if there's a real need for these horses to be treated, whether it's for, for the owner or, or the horse itself, um, to kind of maybe stick more with the natural aspects, the, the apples and the carrots. Okay. Well, the horses will be glad to still still get something uh, from yeah. from their people. <laughs> yeah. uh, Dr. Jackman, uh, we have a, a question from Gail. She sent it in via email, and she has a horse that's not used to living in a stall. You know, lots of our horses do live out and, and are never stabled. She needs to stable him for, for rehab, and he's not drinking very much. Should she be concerned about that situation? And she actually should. Um, you know, I mean, I mean, the number one thing that we we really need to monitor in in horses and make sure that you know the intake is adequate is is water. And you know, it, it's it's sometimes difficult even to have horses out or if they're in a herd situation. It's awfully difficult to know the what is a normal consumption for a horse. There are some horses that, that do have a tendency to drink more than others, but definitely there are some you know maintenance recommendations that a horse should be intaking, albeit depending on ambient temperature, um, exercise level, that type of thing. It can vary. Um, but it is it, it is critical to really know how much your horse is drinking, and you know if if they're not drinking enough, there are things that you can do. Hopefully, to maybe try and stimulate them to drink. I'm not an advocate of adding things to the water, such as electrolytes and stuff, because um, oftentimes the horses really that will actually turn them away from drinking the water. I mean, if if it is something that someone wants to try. 
um, I would always recommend that they hang a second bucket of water in there with the electrolytes as well as just a, a bucket with the water. Um, but obviously, trying to increase the electrolyte consumption is, is, is in an effort to try and just no different than us eating a salty diet is, is stimulating us to drink. Um, so I'm, I'm more an advocate if we want to try the electrolytes to do it more as a top dress on, on the feed or there are some electrolyte paste medications or, or powders out there. Um, that can that can be you know safely you know added, um, but I do think it is something that's really critical to know what is typical for your horse, how much they drink, and if they're not drinking enough, I think it's important to very closely monitor their manure output, um, the consistency of the manure that's coming out. If they're seeing it look a little more drier, that type of thing, then you might want to back off on on some of the forage and the hay that's being fed. Um, and you might want to contact your veterinarian to try and avoid a colic episode. Okay. I really like that suggestion of one bucket of fresh water and one bucket with the electrolytes. I'm going to keep that in mind next time I'm out horse camping. Um, sometimes avoid a problem. Yep, for sure. Uh, we have a question now for Dr. Jackman, and it came in from Wynn, who's in Aiken, South Carolina. And Wynn is asking about the best footing for tendon rehab during hand walking and early exercise. Do you have any suggestions on that, Dr. Jackman? Yeah, I mean, I, I wouldn't tell you that there's an absolute, you know, recommended ideal footing, you know, per se. Um, but what I do want is I want, you know, good footing, meaning that it's not a slick surface, um, that we can, you know, hopefully try to avoid the bad step in the horse. Similarly, I don't usually want a deep surface. A deep surface can allow for an overexertion of the muscle too quickly or a tiring or a fatigue type of an aspect. Um, and then the other thing is I don't want an uneven surface. So I don't want it to be on a slope. I don't want it to especially have an, an uneven, what I call a cuppy type surface where it just kind of has waves and stuff through, through it. Um, all those things promote to them not being able to correctly land on their foot, balance themselves evenly, and when they can't do that, they will overload something. And when you do have an inferior tendon or something that's been damaged, um, a little bit of overload can be too much for that to withstand. Okay. So our next question I'm going to toss over to Dr. Benz, and it's from Cynthia, who is a practicing vet in St. John, Michigan. And she wants to know what drugs you recommend using to keep a stalled horse or a newly turned out horse calm and from prevent and to prevent further injury? I think we're uh, fairly limited on specific drugs that we have to use that are that we know are effective. Well, the ones that we that we that I would use in particular in a layup situation, I I would I tend to use reserpine more than than the long acting injectable tranquilizers such as flufenazine. Uh, the reason for that is that uh, the reserpine is administered orally. It's administered on a daily or every other day basis. Um, it allows me to tailor the dosage, which I think is important because I think these drugs in general can produce side of unwanted side effects in the horse fairly readily, and sometimes those side effects are not entirely dose-dependent. Sometimes, in my experience, that the... the uh, the side effects that we see may be idiosyncratic. Um, for instance, I had a uh, not long ago had a um, a uh, Grand Prix 
jumper horse that was experiencing some time off and needed some reserpine, and we were using extremely low doses, and I always start them out on very low doses, uh, and started seeing some side effects, unwanted side effects at the lowest dose that I use, backed it off to every other day, and still had this horse progressing in terms of getting worse, and I had to, had to remove the drug completely. Uh, and opt for some other management techniques to, to, uh, to take care of the horse. Um, Flufenazine is another drug that's commonly used as a uh, long-term sort of tranquilizer. I think in, in my hands, I, I like to use it, or I would use it in a more of a, a situation where the horses are out being worked regularly uh, and uh, I don't need such intense um, sedation or control. Uh, the thing I don't love about it is once it's a long-acting tranquilizer, it's administered you know, every several weeks, uh, three to four weeks in my hands. I try not to ex um, exceed 50 milligrams in a, in a single dose, and sometimes I think that's maybe pushing it as well. Um, both of these drugs, in particular flufenazine, I've seen severe neurologic side effects with, and again, they're not always predictable in which horses you can, uh, you're going to see those in. So I think if you're if you're going to need some sort of medications to help your horse through um, sort of the sort of the uh, the psych the psyche of of making making it through stall rest and and uh, controlled exercise uh, sort of on its return to work, it needs to be done very carefully. It needs to be done for sure with a veterinarian, and there needs to be continual reassessment and and evaluation of how the horse is doing on it because these things can. Uh, can manifest side effects fairly quickly, and uh, and they're they're frequently not pleasant side effects. Okay, <clears throat> Dr. Jackman, do you have anything to add to that? No, I mean I think Dr. Benz did a great job, you know, explaining it. I mean I think they can be effective, and and I think the 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 interesting thing about them is it's kind of like antipsychotics in people. If there's one that worked beautifully on every single individual, there would only be one antipsychotic out there. Well, yeah. horses are no different. Some work beautiful in some horses and, and uh, you know, either don't work or have adverse effects in other horses. And so I do think it's important to, you know, talk with your veterinarian or, you know, definitely use your veterinarian's advice when, when looking at doing these things. I think the other thing to remember, too, is, is that, you know, the, the two most common ones, the flufenazine and the reserpine, both have extended drug withdrawal times. So, you know, a lot of times, obviously, when we're, we're dealing with stall rest and long-term rehab, that's not an issue. However, um, if we're looking at it from a time where we just need to give this horse a bit of a shorter time off, um, it's something to always, always consider because it, they do have extended, uh, extended drug detection times uh, before they're able to go back into competition. Well, if, if I could interject here for a moment, too. So these drugs, in, in, in my experience, too, are sometimes used as, as – uh, as aids to uh, or facilitators of training, and uh, what Dr. Jackman um, alluded to or said is important to remember is that they will test for a very long period of time. So if you, you know you're using these drugs out of sort of the need to not just um, not for rehabilitation per se, but if you're extending their use to facilitate training, um, you know you've got to be real careful about how and when they're going to test because they'll they'll test for many weeks. So besides using the pharmaceuticals to help manage the horses, what kind of mechanical methods do you recommend your clients use to manage their horses during exercise? Um, Dr. Jackman, do you want to take that? 
Yeah, and, and I, as I was saying earlier, I think the controlled exercise aspect is so critical when we're trying to deal with musculoskeletal injury and really, you know, get get the very best healing response, you know, that we can. And, you know, controlled means exactly what it means. It has to be controlled, whether it's the hand-walking aspect, um, whether it's, you know, the lunging aspect, or I have a tendency, rather than going to a lunging aspect, to if there's any possible way to actually go into an under-saddle, controlled under-saddle aspect. But, you know, if we're hand-walking a horse, we got to do everything possible to make certain that that horse could not injure himself again, obviously as well as not injure the, the handler. And so, um, you know, they might be the best horse in the world, but a lot of times I'll recommend that, you know, people use a chain um, over the nose of the horse just on the off chance that the horse could even still potentially get spooked that what we don't want to do is just have this horse be able to break free, run, and actually make an injury worse or at least or, you know, maybe even take it back to where you started. And so I definitely want them to have a control program. Similarly, if we're in a situation where we're starting them and they're just still too wild, we may use some type of shorter-acting tranquilizer to allow for the controlled walking or controlled under-saddle start um, whether it be the ace promazine um, situation where you, you know, the biggest thing, though, if we're using ace promazine in these situations to calm these horses down so they are manageable to allow for the controlled program, that we make sure we give uh, that type of uh, uh, sedative time to work. Um, if you actually don't give them time to actually let the ace promazine completely take effect, then start you know, exercising that horse too soon, it actually inhibits the acepromazine from really being effective. So you do need to kind of give it, wait the 20 to 30 minutes, then do your controlled program. Okay. Uh, in the meantime, I went ahead and launched our next poll, and it's asking how concerned are you with ammonia and odors in your horse's stall. So please take a moment to answer that, everyone who's out there listening. And, and then I have a question that I'm going to uh, give to Dr. Jackman, and it's from Marianne, and she is joining us from British Columbia, Canada, and she's a massage therapist, and she wants to know what the things, what things a massage therapist, an equine massage therapist, can do to assist a horse that's on stall rest. Dr. Jackman, do you have an answer for us? Well, I, I hope I do. I mean, um, I, I got to admit, I'm not an expert in massage therapy by any means, shape, or form. But what I do feel like is, I do feel that that type of interaction can be very beneficial to a horse that's that's being confined. And I think some of it is literally just the hands-on interaction that can occur between a human and a horse. I think that we can sometimes underestimate how valuable that can be to, you know, the horse psyche. And, and, and that aspect. The other thing is is that I do feel like one of the things that you know horses will do to kind of get the kinks out and uh, you know be able to stretch themselves out and stuff is is that if we go turn these horses out usually in a paddock, I mean they want to run, buck, play, roll, do those types of things. Well, I think it's the bucking, the playing, the rolling that allows for the minor you know kind of adjustments to get the kinks out that that uh, we no longer are allowing if they are in a stall confinement situation. So I do think that, you know, doing the massage, doing the stretching, you know, that type of thing can be very, you know, beneficial. I mean, I get very careful about, you know, shifting loads in different areas and, and, and doing major adjustments in different areas in these things. But as far as like massage therapy and stretching, I think it can be very beneficial. 
Okay. And Dr. Jackman, you mentioned the horse's mental well-being, and that segues nicely into our next question, which is from Gabrielle, and she's in Holland, Pennsylvania, and she wants to know what she can do to keep her horse's spirits up while he's on stall rest, and keep his brain working and keeping him from being depressed. So she doesn't have a horse that's necessarily getting overly excited in the stall. Her horse is actually acting depressed. What can she do to help her horse out? Yeah, and this is an, an uncommon situation because, you know, as in a nature standpoint, I mean, horses are herd animals. They like being around, you know, other individuals. I mean, that's one of the reasons why there's this, this huge, you know, human-horse bond is, is that I think that, you know, we can come, come you know, we can come be, can become part of that companionship that that horse is seeking. And when we take that away from them, I think some horses can get depressed. So I do think, I mean, just spending time with a horse, interacting with a horse is obviously something that would be helpful, but, you know, many of us have jobs, and that's not something that we can constantly do. And so, you know, oftentimes when we find situations like this, and sometimes it's because the horses are excited or pacing or, you know, not being the kind of, you know, quiet uh, animal that we would like in a stall, I mean, we're going to try to see if we can link them up in some type of a companionship aspect. So that may mean that, you know, if there's a mate that they really, you know, enjoy being around that we'll either try and either, you know, unfortunately have to stall that one but next to it or across from it so that they can have that interaction. Um, there's situations where, you know, we've known horses that uh, we've had great success in either getting them linked up to you know, a burro or a donkey, um, if they like, some, you know, that, that type of creature. Um, some of them are scared to death of them. But, you know, a lot of them will actually really link up to a burro or something that can actually live in the stall with them. And the other thing that uh, we've also had a lot of success with is actually sometimes getting them linked up with goats. And goats can be great companions for the horses. We've had a number of horses that, uh, you know, whenever they come to see us for their appointments, here comes their goat right along with them. So, so um, I think we, we can't underestimate how much they like being herd animals, how much they like that companionship. Uh, goats are definitely characters, I bet, to have, have in the clinic, Dr. Jackman. It, it, it's interesting because some horses love them and some horses are scared to death of them. So it <laughs> makes for an interesting moment or two. Yeah, I could see that going, going either way. Um, so we have uh, several more questions that we got regarding behavior in stalls. So we had the depressed horses and then and the excitable horses, but we also have these horses that are developing vices in their stalls while they're on rest. Dr. Bentz, uh, James in Sacramento, California, is wondering if you have any recommendations to prevent a horse from digging holes in the stall while in confinement. And that could be digging holes. You could probably substitute weaving, pacing, uh, and cribbing, and wood chewing. You can hear me okay now? Okay. Yes. Yes. Okay. Yeah, um, good, good, good question. Certainly a commonly in, encountered problem with horses that, that are on rehab or on stall rest. Um, Dr. Jackman's probably dealt with this as much, if not more, than I have. Um, you know, I, I think it all gets back to um, managing the individual horse. And, you know, my, my, my impression is if they're digging holes, it, it's a manifestation of a behavioral issue that is probably associated with the confinement. Um, my approach or my suggestion to that approach would be to initially uh, start with seeing if there's some way to, to um, you know, to parlay the, the behavioral aspects of, of the confinement. And again, that gets back to a lot of the things that we've already discussed. 
uh, in sort of treating the brain, if you will, uh, and some sort of uh, ability to even even bonding with one of the animals that you guys have, have mentioned already, as Dr. Jackson mentioned already, companionship, having a, a sort of a, a visible horse uh, in a nearby stall, having a even a, a I think uh, sometimes uh, having a situation where there's a stall with a with a small run uh, that goes outside of the barn, if, if that's safe for the horse, um, allows the animal to be outside, feel like it's engaged in a, a different environment, uh, and perhaps is helpful to the brain as well. Now, getting back to you know managing the, the actual digging, um, you know it may be helpful, and Dr. Jackman can give some recommendations here, but it may be helpful to have provide a, a better footing. Uh, if you can dig holes, you're more likely to dig holes. Uh, so I think that, um, you know, sort of more natural ground and cover and, and uh, uh, sort of uh, uh, dirt floors and what have you are going to be, you know, probably more likely to be manifest uh, with uh, stall diggers, and, if you will. And uh, if you've got some sort of uh, matting or a different type of floor in there, maybe that uh, for that particular horse might be might help be a deterrent for it. But again, I think that the, for me, in my in my mind, I, I'd like to see uh, an approach that at least includes the involvement of trying to treat the horse's behavioral issues um, with with stall confinement. Okay. And Dr. Jackman, we have a question that's regarding kicking specifically. We, we've talked about now some of the other behaviors that come up when a horse is in their stall for long term. But Summer, who's in Texas, is worried about a horse that has a leg injury and is going to be kicking in the stall. So this kind of adds another layer to this problem of, of behavior in the stall. Do you have any suggestions for your clients on how to manage a kicker? Yeah, and, and I do. And this can be such a tough, tough deal. I mean, you know, obviously with the kicking aspect, there's there's a couple risks. One is if, if you do kick a really, truly immovable wall, a concrete-type wall or something like that, there's obvious injury that can occur to the foot. Um, obviously... You know, if they're kicking around, there's always the the risk of them either, you know, overloading. If we're dealing with a front end issue, overloading the front end as we're as, as we're kicking, as well as potentially injuring the opposite leg as we're kicking. And and there's devices that have been used to try to keep horses from doing that. And and you know, again, if you can get to the behavioral root of it, try and change the behavior. That's obviously best. Sometimes it's not possible. I mean, there's people that I've known that have hobbled horses if they just have to stop this. Um, and, and, and if a horse is taught to hobble and, and hobble well, I mean, in reality, it can be a very, you know, safe aspect to do, and, and it can be a very humane aspect to do as well, because it's not hobbled where they just can't move around, but you're just trying to prevent them from being able to actually just kick out that one leg and, and, um, potentially injure something. There's also kicking chains that can be used. They're not my first line of choice by any means, but it's a it's a situation where it's a you know padded you know like a fleece lined cuff that'll go around in the pasture area that does have a chain attached. And obviously, you know, if they kick and that chain hits them or or even scares them, then a lot of horses will stop that behavior. But you do risk potentially some some aspect of injury to the opposite leg, and that's why it's not necessarily my favorite. But I've known people that have had success with that. Um, you know, there's there's times that you can actually, and I think that this is actually a relatively clever thing to do, is to take a, a steel horseshoe 
have it where it fits to where it just, just barely fits around that pastern and just lays there. And then actually when they go to kick, that wobbling aspect there just becomes enough of an irritant that they don't want to do it. Now, I've never seen that actually promote kicking, but I suppose it could in some horses. But in reality, it, it can actually be quite effective. Um, doesn't really seem to cause an irritation to the skin um, and that type of thing. And so that can work as well. But, you know, I, I mean, I agree with Dr. Ben said, if we can get to the root of the behavioral aspect, you know, whether it's, you know, adding companionship, believe it or not, I mean, you can put mirrors in stalls. And sometimes that will work for horses. You just got to make certain that you mount the mirror at the correct height and you, and you use a mirror that, that cannot be broken because um, obviously some severe injury could happen as well. But but mirrors will sometimes work, especially with pacers. They've, they've noticed that, that a mirror can sometimes stop some horses from pacing. They think they got a companion next to them, even though it's themselves. <laughs> um, and so, you know, there's, there's different things. But, you know, sometimes we can just make a 12 by 12 pen outside. And just so that they can go outside, experience the sunshine, look around, and, and, and they'll stop some of that, the untoward behavior as well. Yeah. And we have a question from Heather, who is in Massachusetts, and she had asked how to keep her horse calm while the other horses are leaving the barn and spending the day out in the sunshine in the pastures. And so I am assuming that that would be your recommendation, is to let, let the horse see the other horses and have an in and out. Is that the case? Yeah, and, and that's a relatively common issue is, is that, you know, what do we do because, you know, as long as they're next to their, their companions, they're great, and then all of a sudden the companions go away, and boy, they want to go with the companions. And, and to be quite honest, I think that's a situation where you just have to keep a companion near the other horse. If, if, the, if, if this is a horse that needs to be confined and needs to stay calm, best way I know to do it in that situation because they're just wanting to be part of the herd is that, you know, unfortunately you're just going to have to keep some of the herd back with them. Okay. Yeah, it's hard to be the last horse left in the barn. It is. It is. All right, so we went ahead and closed our second poll, and 54% of everyone out there is concerned with odor and ammonia in their stalls when their horses are in layup. Um, so the next question, um, let me take a look here is going to go to Dr. Jackman again, and it's Bill who's in North Plains, Oregon. And Bill would like to know what some good exercises are for a horse during stall rest. Yeah, and that's, that's kind of a, a little bit of a wide open question because it depends on what you're dealing with and, um, you know, are we talking about strict stall confinement or that type of thing? If it's strict stall confinement, I, you know, we're kind of getting back to the massage therapy and stretching and, and, and those types of things just to try to, you know, kind of keep the kinks worked out. But, you know, usually when we're dealing with a musculoskeletal injury, I mean, we're going to start with controlled hand walking. Um, and so I think it's, it's very important you know, for, for horses to move around during the rehabilitation practice. If we all remember, or if we can remember, if we're old enough to remember, you know, 20 years ago when somebody would go have knee surgery, they'd stay in the hospital for several days. They'd go home on crutches, if not in a wheelchair. They'd go lay on the couch with the leg up. Well, now what happens? Well, it's on an outpatient basis. They're going to get you up and walking the day you have surgery. And they're going to then also prescribe going to a physical rehabilitation aspect. Well, that's what we need to do with our horses as well. And so really, you know, I mean, the horses do have to be standing on all four limbs, you know, immediately after, you know, whatever injury, surgery, that type of a thing. 
but we do want them to load these things. We just want them to load these in a very gradual program and in a very controlled program. So we're usually going to start with a hand-walking type of an aspect, then hopefully maybe getting up into a tack-walking type of an aspect, and then hopefully getting up into a trot type of an, uh, a program where we might just be on a really rigid program where we want the horses being exercised at least five to six days a week. We want them trotting only two, maybe three minutes a day. And we're going to do that, say, for 10 rides. And then we're going to actually gradually increase that up, obviously knowing that we're monitoring the condition all along the way. OK. And Dr. Bentz, we have a follow-up question that came in from our live audience. Someone out there would like to know about underwater treadmills. Actually, it's Maggie in Nashville. And she wants to know if you recommend using underwater treadmills to rehab horses that are on stall rest. I can't speak specifically. I haven't um, had enough exposure to underwater treadmills. Um, I, I think the theory is 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 probably fine. Um, I think it's likely to be helpful. Um, Dr. Jackman, you have a, a feeling one way or another on this? Yeah, we actually recommend them quite a bit. Um, and I think it's a lot of it because, you know, being a surgeon and dealing with a lot of musculoskeletal injury, you know, there are situations where a tendon is a connection from muscle to bone. And what we oftentimes want to do is make sure we're able to get that muscle conditioned without putting excess stress and strain on a tendon or a ligament. And uh, underwater treadmills are great ways to do that because of a number of reasons. I mean, number one is obviously just being in the water uh, adds a buoyancy, so you decrease the amount of concussion that's actually coming down through the leg. Obviously, being in the water also adds a resistance factor, so you're getting some work on those muscles without really having to have the stride length and things that you know the injury may not be up to actually getting at this point in time. So I'm actually a, a, a quite a big proponent if if it works into a situation where there's a rehab center nearby that is good and skilled in being able to do this, um, works well with your veterinarian, and those types of things. I'm, I'm a big proponent of the underwater treadmills. Um, you know, I, I do feel that they can add a great deal of benefit to the horse. Okay. Would, that, would that also be, um, uh, I mean, could, could you also advocate then uh, swimming as, as a, a recuperation too? You can. I mean, you know, the the only thing that I'm a little just leery about in swimming. I think swimming is absolutely fantastic exercise for horses, but just like in people, there's you know, there's some that are natural swimmers, and there's some of them that right. struggle to maintain a float. <laughs> and I yeah. do think that, depending on what the injury is, say, so if I have a stifle type of an injury or something, I'm a little careful about my preference would be an underwater treadmill over swimming in that type of a situation because I've yeah. just seen some of these horses get in these swimming pools and just, I mean, fight to struggle to try to learn how to swim and, and to try and maintain themselves. And I think that they are actually putting, the power of a horse is amazing. And I think the amount of stress actually that they then end up putting through that stifle is more than I want at that point in time. Okay. We have Nancy who is listening live out there and she's from Virginia and she has a horse who's been on stall rest for the last two weeks. He's recovering from surgery after having, um, he had a, a humeral fracture and let me read here, and he had it 
the surgery, during the surgery, the bone was removed from the, the fracture up. He's been on the stall rest for two weeks. Sutures are out. Her vet is recommending uh, four more weeks of, of stall rest with 10 minutes of hand walking and two minutes of hand grazing daily. They're pleased with his progress and her vet is starting to recommend possibly putting the horse under saddle for exercise. Do you guys have any thoughts on that? Well, I, you know, I, I, you know, I, I mean, I guess I'll speak to that more from a surgeon standpoint. I mean, um, you know, if, if you have a horse recovering from a humeral fracture, great for you. Those, are, those can be extremely tough things. Um, you know, it, it is very individualistic depending on the type of injury and, and that aspect, but it sounds like you're doing great and your veterinarian's giving you wonderful advice and I would continue to follow it. I understand completely why they're going from a walking aspect to an under-saddle walking aspect because, again, what you're trying to do is avoid the real, you know, kind of catastrophic misstep. And, you know, it's just that much easier to keep them under control when you're on their back than it is on the end of a 20-foot lunch line. And so I, I completely understand why they're trying to go that route with that program. And, and I would just encourage you to, to continue to follow your veterinarian's advice because I, I, it sounds to me like you guys are doing great. Okay. Thank you, Dr. Jackman. Dr. Benz, did you have anything to add? Well, I would just say, and generally speaking, you know, for anybody that that is encountering a situation like this where they are returning their horse, you know, there's there's no reward for returning them early. Uh, however, if if you push it too fast, there there can be um, a significant setback. So, uh, I would, I mean, I, I don't, I'm not a surgeon, um, but I, generally speaking, I would suggest people adopt a conservative approach because I think in the long run they'll be a lot happier with the results as opposed to trying to move them along faster. So just take your time and follow your veterinarian's recommendations and uh, um, do, it, do it the right way so you don't encounter problems by moving too, too quickly. Yeah, you definitely have a point there. There's, there's no blue ribbon for rushing any of this stuff when, when you're waiting for a horse to heal. Uh, Nancy has a follow-up question, uh, and Dr. Bentz, maybe you can address this. Her horse, the same horse, has become aggressive in the stall and is pinning, pinning his ears and trying to bite at her, and she's feeling hesitant about reprimanding him because she doesn't want him to re-injure himself. How should she manage her horse so that she doesn't get injured as well? Well, I, I think I'm hopeful that, that with the change in, in the exercise program that, that some of this behavior would, would change for, for her and for her horse. Um, you know, I, the horse may be showing behavioral manifestations of what we've been talking about. And uh, I would be hopeful that, you know, now with the added um, sort of uh, increase in exercise and the changing in environments and what have you and the more and the increase in engagement of that horse that Hopefully, some of that uh, behavior will will resolve. I think it's it, reprimanding is, you know, in this situation is um, uh, potentially dangerous. Um, I think that uh, you know you you need to keep yourself safe above all else. Um, but I think you know again, getting back to managing the the brain, and so to speak, uh, this, in my opinion, would be at least from what I'm getting here is a manifestation of of the uh, of the layups and the uh, psychological effect on the horse and getting the horse out and involved uh, 
engaged in doing some activities and hopefully being around some buddies again will hopefully uh, change that behavior back uh, if that's something that has been a recent onset. If it's been the character of the horse, then obviously there's greater issues to deal with, but uh, it sounds like this is something that has recently begun and I would hope that the change in the exercise program and, and um, the activities of the horse will, will help ameliorate that. Okay. We have a follow-up question from Anna who's listening live uh, and maybe Dr. Jackman you can address this first. She wants to know how often horses re-injure themselves because the owners are not following your instructions to the letter. Dr. Jackman, do you have some thoughts on that? Um, yeah, I mean it, it happens. Um, you know, as 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 much as as you'd hate to say it, um, you know, but you know when they're doing really well, and you know what what we always have to remember is the clinical appearance of the horse will always progress a bit faster than the injury itself, meaning that you know, the horse is going to appear clinically healed before the actual injury itself is, is, is completely healed. And so it's, and it's tough sometimes for the veterinarian because, you know, in all honesty, I mean, yes, I, you know, the patient is the horse, but, but the client, you know, is, is you know, part of this, this process and we want to please everybody. And so, you know, I think it's important to, to, you know, just reaffirm that what we always want to do and always just think in your mind is what we want to do is what's best for the horse. And that's where your diagnostic equipment comes into play to really assess this healing process and see where we're at. I, I will tell you that we probably get more re-injury because, you know, the horse doesn't listen to our plan um, as well as we would like, more so than the owner. Um, but, but in reality, um, yeah, it does happen, and I think just the important thing to remember is is that the clinical appearance of the horse is always going to look a little bit better than the injury does um, for a time being, and that, you know, that's where I do feel like the, the control program with the periodic monitoring is just absolutely critical. Okay. Yeah, sometimes it's hard to keep those horses on the same page with their humans, huh? Yeah, it's tough. It's, it's tough when they look good to not want to get on them and enjoy them again. <laughs> Uh, we had a question come in from Victoria, who's listening live, and it's along the lines of a question that Karina from Calgary, Alberta, Canada, sent in during registration, and that is whether or not you have any herbal supplements or sedatives that you would recommend. Dr. Bence, do you want to take that one? Um, well, I think um, herbal-wise, I, I, you know, I don't tend to use a lot of herbal supplements. Um, I don't know that they always perform reliably in my hands or in a predictable manner from one horse to the other. So I would have to say, generally speaking, no. Um, I think there are products that people use out there with anecdotal reports of success, um, and uh, and that's kind of transferred from owner to owner um, and not necessarily through the veterinarian. Um, my uh, my my sort of my preference would be to utilize. Some of the other medications that we've talked about, um, with uh, with close consideration of, of the um, you know the potential side effects, um, and obviously you know trying to institute some management mechanisms to control the uh, the effects of the, the stall confinement on the on the horse. <clears throat> so if you, you don't have to use tranquilizers, I you know I think it's better not to. I think management issues should should sort of be the antecedent to using medications or other supplements. Um, 
And then if you get into a situation where you, where you do need something like that, try to use them for as short a period of time as possible and, uh, and you utilize them in a, in a, in a safe manner. Uh, again, I, herbal supplement-wise, I, I personally don't have specific um, products that I use reliably because I just, I just don't know that I can always predict how they're going to affect one horse to the next. Okay. Yeah, no, I completely agree. I mean, in, in my experience, you know, we talked about the antipsychotics and how they can be, you know, unpredictable and, and individualistic and that type of a thing. But what I will say is is that they've been far more predictable in my hands than what the herbal supplements have. I, I just haven't found them to, to be consistent enough for the results that I've been needing in the situations that I've been needing that I, I, I have I have one or two that I would recommend. Now, that being said, it's not to say that, that people aren't continuing to look into that. Um, and, and maybe we'll find something or some mixture that, that does become a little bit more of a predictable you know, nature. Um, however, I think the other thing to remember is just because it's herbal does not mean that it can't be toxic, that it can't be unsafe, that it can't be overdosed. Um, that type of a thing. I mean, you know, herbal doesn't necessarily, yes, it, it should equal natural, but it doesn't necessarily equal safe. Okay. Yeah, more testable for that matter. Yeah. So I went ahead and closed the last poll uh, that, that we had up. 69% of our audience is most concerned about whether or not their bedding products are all natural or their deodorizers are all natural or environmentally friendly. And then I'm going to go ahead and post our last poll and that is how frequently do you use a stall deodorizer. And we're down to just about 10 minutes left. Uh, with our discussion tonight. So we'll try to move through some more of these questions because there's some, some great questions that we have left. Uh, we've had several questions, Dr. Jackman, about horses that stock up while they're on stall rest. So you go into the stall and, and their legs are swollen. Should the owners be concerned? Do you recommend keeping standing wraps on those horses? What can, what can the owner do to help their, yeah. that horse? Yeah, and that can be a very frustrating problem. I mean, stocking up is literally the the reason why horses are stocking up is it's 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 a change in their circulation that's happened, and you know, cells outside the bloodstream get nourished by fluid leaking out of the arteries, getting reabsorbed mostly through the veins, but some of them then get reabsorbed through some thin-walled uh, structures called lymphatics. And usually it's, it's the fact that we're not moving around, so we're not pumping the blood like we used to. We're not getting those things, that fluid removed by the lymphatics, and it's just a collection of fluid under the skin, generally non-painful, should not be hot, should not be you know, painful to actually kind of squeeze on, may leave a little indentation if you squeeze hard enough, but, um, and that's what true stocking up is. It's hard, it's difficult, because until you can actually get these horses moving around, it can be very difficult to manage. You can try to manage them with wraps. However, you can make them become what we call wrap-dependent, meaning that they get so used to having that pressure that their veins and lymphatics aren't doing the work that they should be doing to remove that fluid. And so you can actually then, when you go to try to remove that wrap, get them into a situation where they actually stock up worse. So if you are in a wrapping situation, usually I'm going to try to get them out of the wraps over a period of time, and that may mean taking them off for two hours a day for a while, then four hours a day for a while, then six hours a day for a while. But really it gets to a point where 
you know, usually even when we have horses stall confined, we'd like to have them moving around a little bit. So if they're just sitting in the back sulking, I'm going to try and find some way that I can get them more stimulated to be moving around a little bit more. But if you have to manage them with wraps, I mean, you know, sometimes we just absolutely have to. But but uh, you can try massage, you can try cold water, hosing, those types of things. But those will usually be kind of transient. Um, so we can actually increase that exercise. It's just something that we're going to deal with. Okay. And I want to thank Victoria, who's in Virginia, and Sandra in North Carolina, because they both submitted questions regarding horses stocking up and how, how to take care of that. Dr. Benz, the next question is for you, and it's from Lynn in California. And she wants to know if there are any specific beddings you recommend for horses that are on stall rest, and if there are any that would help prevent pressure sores from occurring when the horse is lying down. I think that the bedding is, is again, partially ind independently um, uh, dependent for each individual horse because I, I, there are some horses that have certain problems that can't tolerate other beddings. For instance, um, uh, there may be respiratory illnesses or other problems uh, associated with molds or whatever in, in poor quality straws, if that's all you have access to, or bedding on hay. Um, I think that the, the bottom line is if, if if you're trying to select a bedding for a cushioning effect, um, you just have to use more of it and, and use uh, perhaps uh, consider what your base is as well underneath the bedding. So if you need to have something that's a little more forgiving, uh, it may not be the best, for instance, to have a horse that has severe laminitis on concrete footing, uh, a concrete stall. Um, even if the bedding is, is thick, you probably need something different. Uh, for instance, a sand-based or, or even a dirt-based would do would do well with some with some deep footing. So I, I think that you know it's situationally specific. It's dependent on what the needs are of the horse. But I think that if you want to provide cushioning effect, you're just going to have to use more of whatever bedding you have. I think that some of the smaller beddings or the finer beddings, such as sand or such as sawdust, probably conform to the foot a little bit better than the larger. Uh, beddings, uh, the, the uh, large um, shavings, or even even perhaps straw and hay. Uh, so that may be, and sometimes they use the, a mixture of beddings to to get the, the beneficial effects of both. And that might be uh, maybe underneath you've got sand, or maybe underneath you've got some uh, straw or whatever, and something else on top of it. For instance, um, on top of your of your straw, maybe you've got some uh, some. Uh, uh, shavings on top of that. Uh, again, independently specific, but um, you know I, I, the, the factor comes into it, especially in the layup. Is you know if you're going to have a horse that's in stall rest, you're going to be um, having to change bedding more frequently, uh, keep the stall a little bit cleaner. Uh, it's going to require more intensive management of the stall because obviously the horse is in there much longer, and probably will be exposed to toxins and what have you that are emanating from the. Uh, bedding and, and soaking the bedding, and so that's going to require uh, some consideration on the financial aspects of it too. Uh, so you know, if you if you have a different, if it's, you have to make a choice between using cheaper bedding that may not be as ideal, but you can bed it deeper. Um, that may be some a selection you need to make so that you can bed it deeper instead of using a more expensive type of bedding and, um, and not being able to bed it as deeply as perhaps you should. Okay, and you mentioned the respiratory health of the horse. Are horses on layup more likely to have respiratory 
distress or disease, or, and is there anything we can do to help prevent that? Uh, Dr. Jackman, do you want to take that question? Well, I think any horse who ends up getting confined into a barn type of situation has an increased risk with, with respiratory aspects. Um, so the most important thing is good ventilation. Um, and so you, you definitely want to make sure that the stall is well ventilated, the barn's well ventilated, um, you know, that type of aspect. Obviously, by having them confined, you are decreasing some of their exposure to, you know, say, other horses and, and, and potentially less disease transmission. However, remember that a lot of disease transmission actually occurs by uh, us. Uh, people are known as fomites, where we might pet one on a nose and then pet another one on a nose, and and uh, you know, and so kind of sometimes we're going to mind our p's and q's. But you know, the most important thing is since they are living in that stalls, are living in the stalls, then we need to make sure we keep those stalls really clean. It's 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 really easy for them to become you know basically a high ammonia type of a situation. So, you know, I, I'm, I'm usually going to recommend to my, my clients that they clean these stalls at least twice a day if they possibly can. Um, again, especially if we have to use deep bedding, does two things. One, obviously, decreases the ammonia aspect. The other thing does is it kind of keeps that stall fluffed up and that type of thing. But the most important thing always is ventilation, ventilation, ventilation. Make sure we got air moving, you know, through that stall. Okay, and we are just about out of time, but I do want to ask one more question, uh, and this is from Michelle in Rhode Island, and she is asking, Dr. Benz, I'll, I'll shoot this one your direction, uh, she has a horse with a flexor tendon injury, and she was wondering if you have any recommendations on matting in the stalls. You mentioned sand or dirt. Would you recommend a firm mat or one that is soft and has the, the mattress squishy stuff underneath it? That's a technical term, my, right? <laughs> for, for my purposes, I would say that, um, yeah, it's part, again, partially dependent on what the injury was and how extensive the injury was. But, um, I, you know, I think that, that having a smooth surface um, and a reliable surface where you have some sort of uh, predictability in terms of how the horse is going to be standing and that the surface is level, uh, probably is as important as, if not more so, um, as important as, the, as the, the softness. I would rather that the the um, if you're going to use mats on the floor, I'd rather they not be overly soft. Um, uh, and so I, I I would select for a for a, a sort of a firmer, um, less cushiony sort of mat uh, than perhaps the might otherwise be the choice. And and I think that. You know, the, the sort of the softer ones that have more give may also be more likely to allow for a, sort of a, a misstep or an inappropriate sort of um, landing of the foot somehow. Uh, Dr. Jackman, perhaps even more, um, uh, more appropriate to ask this question. No, I mean, I, I agree completely. I mean, to me, I want I want a even surface. Um, when you're dealing with, you know, flexor tendon type injuries, uh, you know, you want to avoid the misstep. You want to avoid, you know, them loading that that foot or limb incorrectly. And so, you know, I have a tendency to just want a a, a you know, a nice even surface, which generally even surface means, you know, probably a firmer surface. And then if you need to add, you know, some padding to it, then that's added with your bedding and that type of thing. So. You know, I, I get a little area. I mean, I've I've been in, you know, seen some of these. Uh, you know, stall mattings that are really cushy, and gosh, they feel so good to us. 
But when you yeah. watch horses in them, I mean, they're really loading their feet unevenly. And so, um, you know, I'm, I'm a little cautious as well regarding those. Okay. Well, unfortunately, we are out of time. Um, thank you both for all of your great responses to these questions that were submitted. This is a great topic for us to talk about. Definitely for everyone out there who's managing a horse on stall rest, we wish your horse a speedy recovery and good health to all those healthy horses out there so hopefully they don't end up on stall rest and, and in rehab. I want to thank Dr. Jackman and Dr. Bentz. Thank you very much, gentlemen, for joining us. Oh, you're very welcome. Your your wonderful questions. <laughs> yeah, our our readers and audience always always have really really wonderful questions for us. I want to thank everyone who's out there who's logged in to listen live. I want to let you know that if you want to listen again, we are archiving this event on thehorse.com. You'll find an audio podcast uh, hopefully next Monday. If you have any additional questions about stall rest and rehab, we invite you to search through the resources and articles that we have on thehorse.com to see if there's anything that can help you out with your additional questions. Thank you. I might, might also comment here, too, that there is a, a, a book out called Rehabilitating the Athletic Horse, and it's published by Nova Science Publishers in 2010. The editors on this book are Dr. Um, Hank Chan and Bud Fackelman, and that is available through Amazon.com. And that uh, it's also a pretty good resource for some of the information and questions that may be arising regarding rehabilitating courses. Okay, uh, thank you, Dr. Bentz, for that. Um, giving people yeah. lots of places to get good information. Um, so, with that, I want to say thanks again. Thank you for joining us, and I hope everyone has a wonderful night. Thank, Thank you. you. Bye.